Welcome to Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church. We're going to change gears a bit and begin a series of podcasts considering the impact that Christianity has had on the world. We'll unpack how the faith has left its imprint on society. The title of this episode is The Change, Part 1, and we'll be taking a look at the sanctity of life. Knowing my fascination with history, and especially the history of Rome, a few years ago someone recommended that I watch a mini-series that had aired on a cable network. While it was a dramatic historical fiction, the producers did a pretty good job of representing the customs and values of first-century B.C. Roman culture. While the series was suspenseful and entertaining, it was rather difficult to watch because of the brutality that was commonplace. And it wasn't put in merely for the sake of titillation or to make the shows more provocative. It was an accurate depiction of the time. More than once, I found myself near tears, broken over just how lost that world was. And several times I said out loud, Oh man, they needed Jesus. Exactly. That was the very era that Jesus was born into and the culture of the gospel spread in. How desperately the Roman Empire needed the life-affirming message that the early church preached and lived. There's an old adage saying, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. When the early Christians came to Rome, we can be thankful they didn't do what the Romans did. On the contrary, slowly but surely, with fits and starts, They eventually transformed the Greco-Roman world from rank paganism to a more or less biblical worldview. Nowhere was that seen more clearly than in the change that was made to the sanctity of human life. During the early days of the Roman Republic, the high value put on the family unit formed a moral base that lent a certain weight to the value of the individual. But as the idea of the state grew during the late republic and then blossomed in the empire, people were evaluated in terms of what they could contribute to the state. That meant that people on the bottom of the social scale had little to no value. The poor, women, and slaves became chattel, property to be used. Life became cheap, and the pagan gods bequeathed no real moral virtue into the Roman world. They were understood to be whimsical and selfish at the best of times and cruel in the worst. The Christian view of the sanctity, that is the specialness of human beings, was based in the Jewish view of man as created in God's image. There was a healthy Jewish population in the city of Rome itself and scattered throughout the other major cities of the empire. Early on, the unique Jewish view of man had infiltrated the Roman world wherever Jews were to be found. So different was this view of man from the paganized Greco-Roman worldview that many of the more enlightened Greeks and Romans had begun attending Jewish synagogues. If they stayed, they became known as God-fearers, Gentiles who believed in the God of the Bible, but hadn't become full converts to Judaism by being circumcised, baptized, and keeping kosher. They occupied a section of the synagogues, sitting by themselves to hear the teaching of Scripture. The book of Acts tells us that some of the Apostle Paul's most fruitful work was in this God-fearer section of the Jewish synagogues. The Jewish idea of men and women being created in God's image took on new potency when the gospel was preached, for it told of God becoming man, and becoming a man so he could go to the cross to ransom lost men and women, translating them from a destiny in hell to the glory of heaven. All of this spoke of God's view of the value of human beings. If he would endure the passion and the cross, 
while it meant that life was of inestimable value. Rather than life being cheap, it was to be honored and protected at all costs, regardless of its station or quality. One way the early Christians demonstrated this was the church's opposition to the widespread practice of infanticide. It was common to expose unwanted children soon after birth, either by drowning or leaving them exposed where the elements or the wild beasts would finish them off. They were left to die for having physical disformities, for being of the wrong sex, or simply because the parents couldn't afford another mouth to feed. Abandoning unwanted infants was quite common in the Greco-Roman world. In fact, the founding myth of Rome begins with two infant boys being tossed into the Tiber River. Romulus and Remus both survived to be suckled by a she-wolf, then raised by an elderly shepherd. It was their later struggle that founded the city of Rome, named for one of the brothers, Romulus. So in the city of Rome itself, parents would regularly leave unwanted children at the base of the Columna Lactaria. In later times, Roman parents would abandon their infants there to show grief over some national calamity, like the death of a beloved emperor. Now, to put that in modern terms, imagine someone dropping off their two-week-old infant at a memorial for 9-11, just walking away, thinking that that somehow shows their solidarity with everyone else's shock and grief. Yet that's what many Romans did with their newborns when a calamity struck. Greeks also practiced infanticide by abandoning their infants. They did so because it was woven into their mythology. The well-known Greek tragedy of Oedipus Rex revolves around Oedipus, who at only three days was abandoned by his father, the King Laius of Thebes. Ion, the founder of Ionia, was abandoned as an infant by his mother. Poseidon, Asclepius, and Hephaestus were all abandoned infants. Even Paris, who started the Trojan War, was an abandoned child. In Sparta, every newborn was brought before the elders for inspection, and if the child was deemed weak in any way, well, it was abandoned. As shocking is realizing in all the literature that comes to us from this time, nowhere was there a shred of evidence that infanticide was wrong, or even questioned. Infanticide wasn't practiced just among the Greeks and Romans. Other ancient societies practiced it as well. Plutarch said that the Carthaginians had made infant sacrifice a regular occurrence. When building a new house or wall, they mixed the blood of an infant with the mortar, thinking that that somehow made the wall stronger. If a wealthy family had no newborn to offer, well, they could buy one off a poor mother. Though we don't have a record of what was on the 12 tablets that formed the basis of Roman law and civilization, we know a good deal of what was in them from quotes of later Romans. Cicero says that it was part of the Roman law to expose deformed infants. In the first century AD, Seneca remarks in passing, without really batting the proverbial eye, that deformed infants were routinely drowned. Infanticide was so common in the later Greek era that in the second century BC, Polybius blamed a population decline on it. Because infanticide was so common, large families among both Greeks and Romans were rare. An inscription found at Delphi reveals that in a 2nd century sample of 600 families, only 1% had more than one daughter. Infanticide was practiced in India, China, Japan, Africa, the rainforests of Brazil, among the Inuit, and among the natives of North and Central America. Early Christians balked not at all at calling infanticide murder. To them, infants were creatures of God who bore his image no less than their mature counterparts. 
they'd heard of Jesus' attention to the little children in Matthew 19. That passage is interesting because the disciples thought that the children approaching Jesus, well, that they weren't worthy of his august attention. And their attitude towards the little ones, contrary as it was to Jesus' own perspective, we may catch a glimpse of how the Greco-Roman culture had influenced them. The pre-Roman Jewish culture put a huge emphasis on children. They were regarded as a great blessing from God. Children were God's promise of a future. Yet in the disciples shooing the children away from Jesus, we may be seeing how the Greco-Roman devaluing of life had infected them. We probably ought to reflect on how the modern abortion debate may have affected our valuation of human life. The parallels to the current population decline among ethnic Europeans ought to be obvious and a sign of how the Judeo-Christian worldview has been gutted from Western civilization. The Didache, the standard catechism used by the church in the first century, tells Christians, quote, you shall not commit infanticide, unquote. It's condemned in the Epistle of Barnabas, written about 130 AD, and in 222, the one-time slave-turned-bishop of Rome, Callistus, expressed his dismay at the widespread practice of exposing unwanted children. It was this, and the very vocal Christian opposition to it, that helped fuel the persecution of the early church in so many places around the empire. The Romans placed great stock in tradition and looked with suspicion on anyone that sought to change it. Well, the Christians were doing just that with their radical ideas about how to treat the unwanted. While Christians opposed infanticide, they were unable to do anything about it as a social policy while they were an outlawed group. It wasn't until the Edict of Milan in AD 313 that they were able to even speak to official policy. Then, only 60 years later, the Emperor Valentinian, at the urging of Basil of Caesarea, outlawed the wicked practice of infanticide. But while they waited for the laws to change, early Christians didn't just sit on their hands. They regularly went out to the hillsides where children were left exposed and took them into their homes, raising them as their own children. In Rome, Bishop Callistus organized people to roam the streets in the late evening, looking for abandoned children. He then placed them in the homes of parents wanting them. As far as we know, this was the first organized adoption agency, even though it was done on the sly. The famous martyr Polycarp's protege, Beninus of Dijon, rescued and nurtured abandoned little ones, ministering to the needs of children who'd been deformed because of botched abortions. Afra of Augsburg, a notorious prostitute before her conversion to Christ, began a ministry to the abandoned children of prisoners, thieves, smugglers, pirates, runaway slaves, and all sorts of 'er ne'er-do-wells. No one should get the impression from this that following Valentinian's outlawing of infanticide and child abandonment, there was an immediate overnight end to the practice. Oh, far from it. People in Europe and the Eastern Empire continued to off their offspring in large numbers and Christians continued to adopt them. But as the influence of the Christian worldview spread, there was a deep and fundamental shift that took place in the way that people viewed human life, all of it, from cradle to grave. And where that respect for life settled in, infanticide evaporated. It got to the point where a single abandoned infant became a shocking event in the news which spread like wildfire. And when desperation moved some young mother to abandon her child, where did she end up leaving it? Well, not on a hillside, leaving it to die. No, she left it on the doorstep of the local church because she knew that her child 
would be taken care of. So it ought to be with the deepest kind of grief that we hear now about newborns being left in dumpsters and gas station restrooms. It seems that we've regressed, not progressed, devolved, not evolved. Society has at any rate. And to think there are people who actually rejoice that the Christian worldview has been cut loose from modern society. We have abortion, which is really just an earlier form of infanticide. Partial birth abortion isn't even that. If a woman doesn't want to make the appointment to rid herself of the unwanted before it's born, no problem. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. So what's next? Gladiatorial combat? Oops, too late. Slavery? Again, too late. It's already here. We'll be taking a look at many more ways the Christian faith has impacted culture and civilization in the weeks to come. Worship your 